I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22 for this message entitled, The Provider. The Provider. In this message, we will look at the first 19 verses of Genesis 22, which the late James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he said this, it is the first passage since Genesis 3.15 in which we are pointed to the love and provision of God for guilty sinners through Christ's crucifixion. Another author wrote of this passage, so long as men live in the world, they will turn to this story with unwaning interest. There is only one scene in history by which it is surpassed. That where the great father gave his Isaac to a death from which there was no deliverance. Unquote. I give you those uh, quotes to tell you this. Though the narrative focuses on Abraham, the hero of this account, if you will, is not Abraham, but is the Lord himself. And so if you're there, follow along as I read verses 1 to 14, just to get the drama in our minds, and then we'll come back and walk through it one verse at a time. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this text, there is much to be perplexed by. There is much heartache and sorrow, confusion, that if we were to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes, even as we might to some degree this morning, it's hard to understand how you could ask him, command him to do this. But Lord, in the end, you prove yourself faithful and you reveal yourself in a powerful way as the provider. And so would you help us to see you in this text? And not just in this text, but to see how your revelation of yourself in this text applies to us. Amen. Well, as significant as it would be to be asked to sacrifice your son for any of us, it was far more significant for Abraham. Verse 1 hints to us that this account took place in the larger life story and relationship between Abraham and God and Isaac. It says there in verse 1, Now it came about after these things. What things came before? Well, historically and somewhat obviously, chapter 22 comes right after chapter 21. And the latter half of chapter 1 tells us about uh, the covenant that Abraham made with Abimelech, the leader of the Philistines. But relationally, chapter 22 can only be understood rightly in the context of Genesis 12 through 21. And what those chapters reveal to us about Abraham's relationship with God and Isaac. We obviously don't have time to walk through those chapters together in detail. So let me just give you a summary of Genesis 12 to 21. Around 40 years prior to the events of this chapter, Abraham was 75 years old and Sarah was 65 years old. And they were childless. According to Joshua 24, Abraham's parents, and therefore almost certainly Abraham and Sarah, were pagans who worshipped false gods. And in an extraordinary display of God's grace, God plucked Abraham out of that idolatrous environment, choosing him uh, above others, and made a unilateral, unconditional covenant to bless him and to make him a nation, and then to put that nation in their own land. Though Sarah would be beyond childbearing years by our standards today, because of lifespans and different dynamics there, she was, it seems, on the latter end of childbearing years. But then 10 years passed by, and God's promise had not come to pass. They still had no son. 
And at that point, when she was about 75, her womb by for sure was no longer viable. So taking matters into her own hands, she proposed to Abraham that perhaps God will fulfill his promises if Abraham, you sleep with Hagar and produce a child through Hagar. So Abraham complied and Ishmael was born. But God told Abraham that Ishmael was not the promised son that would come. He reiterated that the promise of making a nation of Abraham would come as a result of a child that would come from Sarah. Well, one year turned into another and five years goes by and then 10. And at the ripe old age of 99, when Sarah was 89, well beyond childbearing years, the Lord came to them again and said, by this time next year, you will be holding your baby boy. That was a promise that was truly impossible to fulfill by natural means. Abraham and Sarah had waited for 25 years for the child of promise of whom the Lord said that he would bless and make a great nation and bless the world. And in that year, Sarah miraculously conceived and finally, at the age of 100 for Abraham, 90 for Sarah, Isaac was born. At the time that Isaac was born, Ishmael was about 14 years old. And so to avoid rivalry and conflict within the family and really at the Lord's direction, Abraham sent Ishmael and Hagar away. So after 25 long years waiting for God's promise, Abraham and Sarah had their little boy and this little family of three enjoyed life together as they lived in the land of Canaan. If we can read between the lines of chapter 21 and verse 34 and chapter 22 verse 1, Abraham and Sarah were eagerly awaiting the time when Isaac would come of age so he could take a wife and they could see then the next generation come to fruition through their promised son. We don't know how old Isaac was in this account as we start this chapter. Guesses rage, uh, range from nine years old all the way up to 37. In fact, there's an old ancient Jewish uh, interpretation that because chapter 23 verse 1 says that Sarah was 127 when Isaac, when she died, that mu what must have happened was Abraham and Isaac came back from these events, told her what happened, and she died from shock. <laughs> but there's details in the passage that don't allow that to be the case. One hint of Isaac's age is that Abraham used the word translated lad to refer to him in verse 5 which the Lord had used of Ishmael in chapter 21, referring to Ishmael who was 14 years old. And so many tend to think that Isaac was probably a young teenager, maybe 13 to 15 or so. And that would make Abraham himself somewhere in that neighborhood of 113 to 15. Well, with that background, we're now ready to, to journey into this dramatic account. So to help us organize our thoughts, we're going to walk through this drama in four movements. First, we'll see the inexplicable test, the inexplicable test in verses one through four. Then we'll hear remarkable trust in verses five through eight. And then that trust will be demonstrated in faithful obedience in verses nine to 14. And finally, that faithful obedience will receive a certain reward in verses 15 to 19. 
the inexplicable test, the remarkable trust, faithful obedience, and a certain reward. We now lift the curtain on this drama to see the inexplicable test. Look at verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. At first glance, and maybe at the second and third glance, we might ask the question, why would God test Abraham? Hasn't he been tested enough already? Didn't Abraham prove over 25 years that he was trusting in the Lord despite not knowing how God was going to fulfill his promise? In fact, as you read Genesis chapter 12 to 21, Abraham never rebelled against the Lord. He never fundamentally rejected God. Again, though he had grown up in an idol-worshiping home, he never turned away from the one true and living God, Yahweh, and instead went back to his idols of his parents, nor did he go and worship the, the gods of the Canaanites. In fact, some years after God's initial promise, the Lord affirmed the promise once again, and it says in chapter 15, verse 6, Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. So God made his promise, Abraham believed it, and the Lord justified him. Abraham's faith at that point was not shallow, and it certainly wasn't fake. We know it was genuine because the Lord could see into Abraham's heart and, and confirm, he confirmed the genuineness of Abraham's faith by justifying him, by declaring him righteous. And so by the time Abraham is 115 years old, you would think that he has been tested enough by the Lord. I mean, rather than been found wanting, for over 25 years, Abraham's faith has been tested and found steadfast even if it did waver on occasion. Well, the word test is fundamentally a positive term, which means to demonstrate the quality of the object being tested. In our days, uh, many products go through a testing process, a te uh, quality assuring, assurance process. Uh, they're tested against the most extreme scenarios so that they can ensure that normal use will uh, allow the product to, to uphold. Uh, perhaps a precious metal might be put through a fiery test to determine the value and the quality of the metal within. If you really want to know the quality of something, you, you need to test it. And so again, we, we ask ourselves, why would God test Abraham? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us what God is up to here, so we're left to consider why the Lord tests anyone. And this is a question we ourselves can ask about our own lives. Sometimes the Lord tests His people to give them an opportunity to glorify Him. You could say this is the universal purpose. Remember Job? The Lord knew the quality of Job's faith. The Scripture says that Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So why did the Lord test Job? Well, because nobody else knew the quality of Job's faith and certainly not Satan himself. And so the Lord put Job through his tests 
to prove to the angelic realm that Job would worship Yahweh no matter what happened in his life. Sometimes the Lord tests people to put on display what's really in their heart. For example, when the Lord provided manna for Israel in the wilderness, Exodus 16 says, uh, the Lord speaking here, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. In other words, the daily provision of manna by the Lord was a test to see if the people themselves would trust in the Lord's daily provision or if they would gather more than they needed, thinking, well, we got to provide for ourselves somehow because we don't know if the Lord will. The Lord tests to bring glory to His name. The Lord tests to uh, reveal what's in a person's heart. And sometimes the Lord tests to teach people a lesson. In Judges 3, Israel is in the land, but not all the Canaanites have been conquered. And the text says, now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Those who had not experienced it formerly. So the Lord allowed some of the Canaanites to remain in the land so that future generations of Israelites will learn how to engage in battle. And so the text goes on to name the Philistines and other people groups that became common enemies of Israel. So sometimes the Lord uses tests to teach. And then finally, sometimes the Lord tests people with a view to how their example of going through their suffering will be a benefit to others. Referring to Israel's idolatry as they waited for Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 says, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And then again in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So in their case, the test itself became a warning to future generations. Other times, the Lord uses the righteous, the tests on the righteous to create a positive example for others. The chief one being the Lord Jesus himself. Though Christ's suffering has its primary purpose to accomplish redemption for sinners, 1 Peter 2.21 says, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Well, with those possibilities, I would submit to you that Abraham was tested not for his own sake. The events of this chapter actually bring an end to the focus on Abraham's life in Scripture. And, and so we're not told of any future events in his life that the Lord is preparing him for by bringing him through this experience. It may be that there was something going on in the spiritual realm like there was with Job, but we're not told about that. And so it seems to me that when you put together all the biblical data that the Lord is testing Abraham and proving the quality of his faith primarily for the benefit of all God's people who would hear of these events. We'll come back to this at the end when we see how we can draw lessons from this passage. So the Lord tests Abraham. Look again at verse 1 through verse 2. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, 
And he said, here I am. The Lord said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. This fourfold way of referring to Isaac expresses that the Lord knows just how significant his command is. Not that sacrificing anyone's child is ever a light matter, but the Lord puts a spotlight on Isaac as not only Abraham's son, but his only son. Remember, Ishmael has been sent away. And not only was Isaac's Abraham, Isaac Abraham's only son, he was the son whom Abraham loved. Isaac was uniquely loved because he was the child of promise that they had waited for for 25 years. But beyond that, they had waited perhaps 25 to 40 years longer with a deep longing for children as they were growing up and in marriage and getting older. Not only that, there was a special promise attached to Isaac. The Lord had promised that through Isaac, Abraham's descendants would become a great nation and Abraham would become uh, great. So not only was Isaac's very life precious to Abraham, but his future was meaningful beyond measure. And so this beloved and only son of yours, the Lord says, I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him in the land of Moriah. The name Moriah is used only one other time in Scripture and as Doug Bookman would say, it is of unspeakable significance. Second Chronicles 3.1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place where David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Although Scripture never makes an explicit connection between Abraham sacrificing his son and David and Solomon in the temple, it has long been believed that the place where Abraham nearly sacrificed his son is the very same place where the tabernacle dwelled, where Solomon's temple was built, and Herod's temple after that, and then now where the rock, the dome of the rock stands. So it's a place of massive significance. Now it seems highly uh, contradictory that the Lord would command Abraham to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. The Lord abhors human sacrifice. Deuteronomy 12.31 and other passages forbid sacrificing children. It says, You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act that the Lord hates, they have done, speaking of the Canaanites, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So why in the world would the Lord command Abraham to do it? To test him. Keep in mind that Abraham lived over 500 years before the law was given. So he wouldn't necessarily know that child sacrifice was reprehensible to God. The dilemma for Abraham was not that God was asking him to make a child sacrifice, but how could God make a nation out of a dead son? And so the test is to exhibit the quality of Abraham's 
faith. Would Abraham try to solve God's problem for him by some other means as he had tried to do with Hagar and Ishmael or by lying about his wife in earlier times? Or had his faith so matured that he was ready to put Isaac on the altar and let God solve the paradox between his promise and his command? I want you to notice that in this entire chapter, Abraham never speaks to God, except to say, here I am. By keeping Abraham silent before the Lord, the text focuses on his actions and let his, lets his actions speak for him. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Why did Abraham get up so early in the morning? Was he eager to get up and get going? Did he get such a good night's rest that his body just woke up refreshed and ready for a new day? Probably not. This is the third time Genesis tells us that Abraham got up early in the morning. The first time was the day after the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham got up early in the morning to go see what had the Lord done and what happened with his nephew Lot. The second time was when the Lord had commanded him to send Hagar and Ishmael away, and you can imagine that uh, an old man with a young son and an only son by the, at that point that he was tossing and turning during the night, the fact that he was probably never going to see his son again. And so he finally got up early. And then here, the Lord commands Abraham to sacrifice his son and sleep fled from his eyes. His mind raced during the night as he turned the command over and over in his mind, trying to, trying to make sense of it. And the morning came and his body was restless. As, as an old wealthy man, Abraham would have servants who would do all of the labor around the house, but his body now was bursting with nervous energy. And so he got things ready and then he hoisted the bags over the donkey. And then not knowing where he was going to go and what would be available to him, he realized, maybe I should pack up some wood and take that for the sacrifice. And Instead of asking one of those young men to split the wood, he himself went over to the axe and split the wood. Abraham's family and his servants must have observed, observed Abraham's disturbed disposition. They didn't know what was happening, of course, but they could tell something was wrong. He didn't normally get up before everyone else. He didn't normally pack his own bags. And at the age of 115 or so, he certainly didn't yield an axe. But more than that, he must have had a concerned look on his face. That lighthearted disposition he may have had because of his young son who gave him energy and strength was replaced by sorrow. When he looked at his son Isaac, instead of that smile of deep contentment and joy that he would have had, was gone. There had to have been questions. Are you okay, Abraham? Is something wrong? You seem sad today. Abraham, let me do that for you. You don't need to swing the axe. Let me, 
Let me split the wood. Maybe Abraham responded with wordless but pain-filled eyes. Maybe he muttered something like, the Lord's given me a task to do. As he made preparations, he enlisted two young men who would come with them on the journey and help them to set up camp and prepare food and pack things up again. Well, when everything was ready, they set off for the land of Moriah. And verse 4 says, On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. He raised his eyes, which means he was looking down. He was looking down, which is what a traveler would do when they are deep in thought and sorrow. It's one thing to anticipate death. It's another thing to see the place where that death will occur. An inmate on death row has a lot of time to think about death, but it's not until they see that spot where their life will be taken that the reality of death hits them like a wave. And so for three days, Abraham has been turning God's command over and over in his mind, but now he sees that very place where God's command will be carried out. Abraham doesn't freeze. He doesn't turn around. Nor does he collapse on the ground. He takes the next step toward that place of worship. For three days, his soul has been embattled in light of this inexplicable test. But now we see in the next movement, his remarkable trust on display. Of course, we're not told, but we can imagine that those were quiet days of travel. Whatever conversation Abraham had with Isaac would have been subdued as Abraham continued to wonder what God was up to. The scripture tells us that when facing what he thought was his vengeful brother, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, wrestled with God for a full night and would not let go until God blessed him. Here, Abraham wrestled with God for days in his heart and mind, trying to understand how God's promise of blessing through Isaac and his command to sacrifice Isaac fit together. But it seems that he came to a resolved conclusion. The inexplicable test seems to have resolved in Abraham's mind with remarkable trust. We get our first hint of that in what Abraham said to his servants. Look at verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and by implication, we will return to you. Unless we're willing to say that Abraham is being deceptive, we have to conclude that he genuinely believed Isaac would be by his side when he returned to the young men. How would that happen? Hebrews 11 verse 19 tells us the solution to the inexplicable test that Abraham came up with. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Abraham considered, it says. That means that he reasoned. He calculated, 
and he concluded something to be true about God that had never happened before. And it must be true about God because God, by definition, has power over death. If God could create the universe by the word of his power, if God could give life to Sarah's dead womb, then surely God could raise a dead body to life. So having come to that conclusion, Abraham exhibited remarkable trust in the Lord. And it says in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Some have made a connection between Isaac carrying the wood on which he would be sacrificed and Jesus carrying his cross. That's not a hard connection to make, but the vital difference is that Isaac had no idea what was going on. Practically, it makes sense that Isaac would carry the wood. Why? Because Isaac was a teenager and Abraham was a centenarian. But as practically necessary as that was, the significance of having Isaac carry on his back the wood on which he would lay was, could not have been lost on Abraham. They were close enough to Mount Moriah that they would not need to spend the night, and so they took only what they needed for the burnt offering, the, the wood, the fire, and the knife. And with those tools, they walked toward Moriah. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? While they walked in silence, Isaac had been doing some thinking of his own. It was reasonable for him to not ask this question before because he didn't know where they were going and he assumed that because they were going to worship the Lord somewhere, perhaps they would purchase an animal for sacrifice at their destination. But now he's learned that they're at the place of worship and there is no animal. We know, based on biblical history, that around that time, the town of Salem was on that hill. Perhaps it was on the other side of the hill for Isaac not to see it. But he didn't see how they were going to have an animal for sacrifice. And so he asked the most natural question. Father, you've said we come here for worship. We've brought all the tools for sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And so Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide For himself, the lamb, for the burnt offering, my son. Here again, his words exude remarkable trust. His words perhaps convey that even though he's concluded that God can raise the dead, maybe there's another solution that he hasn't thought of yet. Perhaps it crossed his mind that maybe at the last second, God will provide an animal instead of requiring him to sacrifice his son. But at the same time, the Lord made it so clear that it would be Isaac that he would sacrifice. And so... If there was no other provision, the Lamb would be the Son of Promise, whom the Lord had indeed provided. It's not likely that the text exhaustively tells us of the interaction between Abraham and Isaac as they walked on together. But the dialogue that we have is enough to show that Abraham had remarkable trust in the Lord. And so he pressed forward in this inexplicable test. Well, in verses 19 to 14, we see Abraham's remarkable trust 
act out in faithful obedience. And that's the next movement. Look at verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This verse is wrapped in mystery. What was the conversation between Abraham and Isaac? What, what did Abraham say that convinced Isaac to allow himself to be bound and sacrificed? While we don't know his words, we can be sure that Abraham helped Isaac come to the place of trusting in the Lord, even if it doesn't make sense. Well, whatever he said, not only did Abraham exhibit remarkable trust, but Isaac did as well. It's possible that Isaac could overpower Abraham, where at the very least he could run away. He could have run off to those two young men yelling, Dad's gone mad! But he didn't. He submitted himself to be bound, and he allowed himself to be laid on the altar. Verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. With Isaac's hands and feet bound, Abraham would have, would have had to pick him up and lay him on the altar, which was undoubtedly wet with tears. The knife would be off to the side, but having secured Isaac, he, he looked at it. Isaac's remarkable, excuse me, Abraham's remarkable trust empowered his resolve to faithfully obey God's command. And so he took that knife and raised it with every intention to slay his son. But before he could, verse 11 says, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. And said, do not stretch out your son, your hand against the lad and do not do anything to him. The angel of the Lord calls out with urgency. In verse 1, he just says, Abraham. But here he says, Abraham, Abraham, to stop what's about to happen. You can almost hear the clanking of the knife as he let go and it bounced on the rocks. You can imagine Abraham bent over his son, weeping in relief that he did not have to kill his son. Isaac was as good as dead. But now he has received his son back from the dead, as it were. He wept with joy at this resurrection without having to experience the reality of death. Again, verse 12, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The Lord said, Now I know that you fear God. Didn't the Lord already know that Abraham feared him? Yes, he did. In his omniscience, the Lord knew what was in Abraham's heart from the very beginning that the test was issued. He knew the quality of Abraham's faith. He knew that given the opportunity, Abraham would in fact sacrifice his son. But if the Lord had been content to just rest in his perfect knowledge, no one else would know the quality of Abraham's faith. Amen. Not Abraham. Not the angels, not Satan, and certainly not us. And so as I said earlier, this test was not a temptation to see if Abraham would break faith. 
It was a test to confirm what the Lord already knew, but in a way that the world throughout history could see. If that's the case, why does the Lord say there, now I know? As if to say he learned something. Well, in God's foreknowledge, the unfolding of history doesn't in any way contribute or add to God's knowledge. So this is best understood as an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is a human quality ascribed to God, which he does not have. Like when scripture refers to his hands or his eyes or the fact that he learned something. So the Lord didn't learn anything here. It's more like a quality assurance tester whose job is mostly to confirm what they already know, that a product, in fact, works. The Lord stamps Abraham's faith with a sticker that says, tested. The Apostle James talks about this in his discussion about the relationship between faith and works when he says in James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. His point was not that Abraham was declared righteous because of his actions, but rather the Lord had already done that in chapter 15, verse 6, on the basis of faith. What James is saying is that the faith that Abraham professed was now validated by being demonstrated. And the quality of Abraham's faith didn't change, but the verification status went from untested to tested. Again, testing in this sense doesn't, doesn't change the quality of the faith. It only strengthens the confidence that others have when they observe that situation. Well, having tested Abraham's faith and confirmed it, the Lord now provides a substitute. Look at verse 13. It says, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket of his thorns by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Again, Abraham must have been bent over his son, weeping with joy when he hears the, the wrestling in the bush behind him. His, his eyes were no doubt looking down, if not closed. And so he lifted his eyes and looked behind him and sees this ram. Whether, whether they saw animals as they were traveling to this place, we don't know, but it likely would have been difficult for an old man and a young boy to work together to trap a wild animal out in the open when the ram could easily just run off. The Lord could have said, Abraham, now that your faith is tested, I want you to find a ram or go purchase an animal and sacrifice that in his place. And then left Abraham and Isaac to figure that out for themselves. But the Lord provided not only a ram, but a captured ram. He removed all the work of looking and hunting and trapping. Listen, the Lord took out all of the human effort for this sacrifice. And he revealed himself as the perfect provider. So Abraham untied Isaac and then he tied up the ram and offered it in worship to Yahweh as a substitute for his son. Verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. This is truly a monumental event. What took place 
here in this place caused the, the place to become a monument to the Lord such that future generations would, would always be reminded that it was here that the Lord provided a sacrifice for Himself. And in fact, it would be here that the Lord will provide a sacrifice for Himself. It's interesting to note the phrase there, as it is said to this day. Genesis, of course, written by Moses, well over 500 years after this event, before they had entered into the promised land where Mount Moriah is. But so significant is this event that for 500 years, without any written record, God preserved the memory of this event as a monument to His name. Well, we've walked through the inexplicable test. We've heard Abraham's remarkable trust, which was demonstrated in faithful obedience. Next, we see the certain reward. Look at verses 15 to 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and I have, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The language here implies that God is blessing Abraham as a result of his obedience. What's really happening, what the Lord does here is he confirms and strengthens his former promises. Everything God promises here, he's already promised multiple times in chapters 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. So there are no new promises here. This is actually the fourth time that these promises have been made, meaning that they were promises made in the past without Abraham's involvement. They were unilateral, that is to say. Abraham was never involved in those past promises. Not only were they unilateral, they were unconditional, which means that Abraham had never done anything to earn them, nor did God require anything of him to make the, certain, the promises certain. And so it's only on this fourth statement that the promises are confirmed on the basis of Abraham's fully tested faith. The language of the promise really demonstrates that what God is doing is He's making the promises certain. You see there in verse 17 how it says, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed. In the ESV, the sense is conveyed, I think, more accurately by saying, Surely I will bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring. What those translations are doing is, they're, they're conveying an idiom which is literally translated in the King James and the New King James, which says, blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants. That repetition is, an, is a Hebrew idiom of certainty. We today might say, I promise that I will do that. And we say, I promise to strengthen our commitment. But in Hebrew, the statement is strengthened by just repeating the word. So, blessing, I will bless you, means I will certainly bless you. As we sit here, thousands of years later, we have seen those promises fulfilled. God, or excuse me, Abraham was greatly blessed in his final years. His family grew to become a great nation. Today, they are the only people group on the planet that can trace their lineage back to a man thousands of years ago. 
There are no Canaanites today. There are no Philistines today or Edomites or anybody else. All of those descendants of those people groups have been lost in the sea of human relations, but only the seed of Abraham through Isaac remain as a distinct people group today. Well, with God's already certain promises made more sure, they return home. It says in verse 19, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. It's tempting to speculate how that conversation went with Sarah. You did what? But we'll have to wait till heaven to get her perspective on what happened. There's a lot to learn from this passage. Romans 15:4 says, "For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope." Whatever you're going through today, you can look at this demonstration of remarkable trust on the part of Abraham and draw encouragement. You may not understand what's going on in your life just as Abraham did not understand God's command. Abraham's faith led him to conclude that though he couldn't figure it out, God would still be faithful. So all Abraham had to do was trust and obey. And so we must do the same no matter how perplexing our situation may be. Commenting on this passage, Warren Wearsby wrote, God never sends a test until he knows you are ready for it. He went on to say, our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable, and to expect what seems impossible, unquote. You may doubt that you have the faith and the strength to endure the trials of your life. But listen, God knows your heart. He already knows the quality of your faith. And if he's allowed a trial in your life, it's because he knows that he has already granted you the faith, the grace, and the resources to endure. This is the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you're able, but with the test will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. And so James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But there's something of greater significance that we can draw from this passage. When the curtain closes on this drama, we we ought to be left in awe of God, who is the provider. We gain this perspective again when we Remember Hebrews eleven nineteen again it says, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received Isaac back as a type. The New Testament teaches that there are people, events, and objects in the Old Testament that served as types or shadows 
or hints of what was to come in the future. The book of Hebrews highlights how the tabernacle itself and the sacrifices all pointed to the future Christ, the perfect sacrifice who would one day come. Ephesians 5.32 tells us that marriage is designed by God as a pointer to the relationship of Christ and the church. Romans 5.14 tells us that Adam, the first man, the head of the human race, is a, a type, a pointer to Christ Jesus, who is the head of the redeemed human race. There are various ways to understand typology in Scripture, but we're always safest to limit our understanding of types to those things that Scripture explicitly identifies as a type. And so here, in Genesis 22, in this account of Abraham and Isaac, we find a clearly identified type of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a father who loved his son of promise beyond measure, and yet who was willing to sacrifice his son to worship God. We find a son innocent and blameless, who submitted to his father even to the point of death. We have a resurrection of sorts, and one who was as good as dead was given back alive to his father. And we have a ram provided by God as a substitutionary sacrifice. It's not necessary to connect all of the details of the gospel to the story or vice versa, but rather to see these themes as being shadows of what God would do in the future. In a sense, the light of the gospel casts a shadow into the Old Testament where you see the outlines of that very gospel. The gospel is that reality that because of man's sin, what we have earned for ourselves is punishment and death. Not just the cessation of life on this earth, but eternal punishment in hell. But all the way back in Genesis 3.15 and then here in Genesis 22 and in many places throughout the Old Testament, the Father promised that a son would be born who would be a blessing to the world. And at the right time, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, innocent holy life. He pleased the Father in His perfect submission, and He lived for the glory of His Father. When He began His public ministry, John the baptizer, his cousin, saw Jesus coming to Him, and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And three years later, the jealous Jewish leaders the jealousy that they had boiled over and they convinced the Romans to put Jesus to death. The Romans tortured him and hung him on the cross. In the mystery of God the Father's perfect plan, he put the Son of God to death as a substitute for sinners. The one who was holy, innocent, and undefiled gave his life in the place of the wicked and guilty, and defiled. But three days later, the Father raised Jesus from the dead, having accepted His death as a sufficient and pleasing sacrifice. And now, having ascended into heaven, Jesus stands and calls to all those who are destined to eternal punishment to raise their eyes and look at Him whom the Lord has provided as a sacrifice for them. 
My friends, don't believe in yourself and your ability to solve the problem between you and God. Believe on Christ, who is the Lamb of God. Believe on Jesus and His perfect sacrifice and His complete work. My friend, if, the, if you stand before the Lord one day and He asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you pull out your list of all the good things you've done that should make Him accept you? Know that God will not accept your list. Why? Because those lists are our ticket to hell. Scripture says that our good deeds, when used to make ourselves right with God, are like soiled menstrual cloths. One problem is your good deeds are saturated and stained by your bad deeds. It it doesn't take long for clean laundry to stench when they're put together with dirty laundry. But it's worse than that. The good deeds themselves are an offense to God because He's told us in His Word that we can't earn salvation. So when we try to do that, we're rebelling against the very Word of God. So what should you do? Well, you just tear up that list and you point to Christ. The one whom God provided as a substitute, as a Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and you will be saved. I close with these words from James Montgomery Boyce, who said of these two events that happened on the same mountain, quote, Abraham was only asked to sacrifice his son. He did not actually have to do it. Even if he had, there was only a physical death involved. But when the time came for God, the Heavenly Father, to sacrifice His Son, it was not a mere physical death. That was, it was a spiritual death. One that achieved redemption for sinners. When God's hand was raised at Calvary, there was no one to call out, Stay your hand. Do not harm the boy. When God offered His sacrifice, the hand that was poised above Christ fell. Christ died. Through that death, God brought to life all who trust in Christ's sacrifice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Behold your God, the provider. Let's pray. What can we say, O God, to your provision? How can we give thanks that you have given your son, your only son, whom you love, Jesus? You sacrificed him so that we might have our sins forgiven, so that we might be raised to life. Thank you, Father, for taking his life. Thank you for granting him life on that third day. Lord, work in us the faith to believe in him and not in ourselves and cause us to live a life of love and joy in you because of what you've done. 
for the glory of Christ. Amen.